The leaders of Western European nations are dealing with a lot. Bruising political fights over how to approach migrants and refugees, negotiations over what Brexit means, a wave of populist movements sowing discord across the continent, and then there's Donald Trump. This week, all the heads of NATO gathered in Brussels for their semi-annual summit. The U.S. president's commitment to arguably the most successful military alliance in history is, shall we say, tenuous. Are the biggest threats to NATO coming from inside Europe or from Europe's best ally? This is Radio Atlantic. Hi, I'm Matt Thompson, executive editor of The Atlantic. With me in studio here in D.C. is my esteemed co-host, Jeffrey Goldberg. Jeff, hello. Hi, Matt. And Jeff is the editor-in-chief of The Atlantic. Jeff, don't you forget it. I am my boss. With us here in D.C. is our colleague, Kathy Gilsonen. Hi, Matt. Runs international coverage for The Atlantic. Hello, Kathy. Hi. And calling in from California, although she is ordinarily based in our London bureau, is our colleague, Yasmin Surhan. Hello, Yasmin. Hello from this side of the pond, your side of the pond. Um, I just wanted to warn you all that, um, unfortunately, I do have a guest with me. His name is Cosmo. He is a dog. (laughs) And um, despite my best efforts to quiet my surroundings, he's the one factor I cannot control. Um, So if you do hear barking, whining of any of the kind, I'm so sorry. He just has a lot to say. Listen, Um, the Atlantic has long needed a canine correspondent, so we welcome Cosmo's presence in the conversation. Thank you. We are talking this week about NATO. If you were stunned by the cliffhanger left hanging after the G7 summit back in June, then you are expecting fireworks this week. Uh, NATO's leaders are convening in Brussels for their semi-annual get-together. The last time this group, well, several of this group were together in Quebec, it was a pretty tense affair. Do you all remember that photo of German Chancellor Angela Merkel facing down Donald Trump? Yes, or I Donald do. Trump facing down Angela Merkel, depending it, on depending where you're Depending on your right? vantage point. Yeah. Well, this time, there's not just conflict with Trump to worry about. The politics within the EU are getting ever more intense. But before we get to that, Kathy, catch us up. What is happening this week and what are the stakes? So... As we speak, Donald Trump has wrapped up uh, a NATO summit meeting in Brussels. Uh, These are ordinarily sort of snoozy affairs, as you mentioned. There were a lot of fears ahead of this summit that Trump could do something drastic. And we're not done with his world tour yet. And we'll get into that a little bit more later, I imagine. Um, But, you know, at, at this one, he... Trump has a long history of calling into question the value of the NATO alliance. And at this one, he did it to the faces of members of the NATO alliance. He was at a breakfast this morning with Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg in which he called NATO countries delinquent on their spending. He has a longstanding record, of, as, do, as have previous presidents before him, of insisting that NATO countries need to spend more on their own defense, that the U.S. is shouldering too much of the burden. Um, and then at, <laughs> at the end of the summit, he verbally insisted that where he had been advocating they spend 2% of their GDP on defense, now they needed to spend 4% of their GDP on defense, which even the United States does not do. Um, well, these on, sound like pretty small differences. 
<laughs> yeah, sure. Totally. Um, but on the other hand, he did sign on to this 79-point joint declaration that did things like, you know, affirm the commitment to collective defense and condemn Russia for its activities in Ukraine. Um, and so he rhetorically spanked members of the alliance, but so far we haven't seen anything reflected in policy that is actually physically damaging to the alliance. But again, the trip isn't over yet. So by the time you hear this, this may be as obsolete as <laughs> well, NATO. <laughs> whole international letter could be blown up. Uh, now, remind us what happened at last year's NATO summit. So they, you know, they they meet yearly as, as alliances are wont to do. Um, and Donald Trump came on the scene having expressed longstanding skepticism about America's traditional alliances. So it was already going to be an unusual amount of nail biting ahead of that NATO summit. Um, and he did not disappoint. I remember the day of the summit, the New York Times reported that uh, Trump was expected to reaffirm the Article 5 commitment to collective defense within NATO. Which is like a standard thing that the president does. An yeah. attack on one is an attack on all, right? But but there were questions ahead of time whether Trump was truly committed to this. You know, he a bunch of people were reassuring a bunch of re European looters. No, 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 he's going to do this. And then he gave the speech and he left it out. He just didn't say it. Yikes. And so the New York Times felt silly. All these European leaders felt silly because they had to they had to try and sort of put lipstick on this non-commitment pig and say, no, 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 we still trust the United States. Um, thereafter, you had Angela Merkel saying oblique things like Europe is not going to be able to rely exclusively on the United States anymore. We got to take our future into our own hands kind of thing. So, yeah, that that was the that was the prequel to this summit. So they gather after last <sighs> year's gather. summit. The future of NATO hangs in the balance. Now, let's fast forward and move off of the NATO summit. Um, we'll come back to that later in the conversation. But I want to turn to what has been happening over the past few weeks in Europe. Just, Kathy, set, set the table for us on um, what different European leaders have been grappling with in their own countries before uh, they gathered in Brussels this week. Let's start with Angela Merkel in Germany. Sure. So Angela Merkel just survived another crisis in her government. Um, she's She's been a bit of an escape artist, as Yasmin actually noted uh, on the site recently. Um, and this latest one was also about migration, as previous ones have been. But basically, she got in a feud with her interior minister over a proposal he put forward to turn away certain asylum seekers from Germany if they had already applied for asylum in another EU country. So basically, Merkel opposes this. However, her interior minister, by definition, is in her government. He's threatening to cause the collapse of the government. They come up with an 11th hour deal uh, to basically to basically tighten the borders a little bit, but not do the full shebang that this guy was advocating. So Merkel is challenged by the politics of Germany's borders. Take us around to the UK. Yasmin, um, what has UK Prime Minister Theresa May been grappling with as she comes to the NATO summit? <laughs> so it all comes down to Brexit again. The UK has kind of been contending with its own um, also domestic issues uh, surrounding its exit from the European Union and uh, the disagreements within Theresa May's own cabinet over how that exit should look. Um, this week, Theresa May um, saw not one but two cabinet ministers quit. 
their Brexit secretary, David Davis, uh, resigned on Sunday night, and that was quickly followed by Foreign Secretary Boris Johnson the next day. This was over Theresa May's uh, proposed plans the week before um, for how the UK should leave the EU. Um, she proposed uh, sort of what they call a softer Brexit that would see the UK um, maintain close regulatory alignment with the EU after it leaves. Um, some kind of hardline Brexiteers like Johnson and Davis uh, don't think that's good enough. They think that if they're going to leave the EU, it should be a hard, clean break. So they left. Um, but it was a particularly bad time, uh, not just to lose a, a Brexit secretary nine months before the UK actually plans to leave the EU, but to also lose their foreign secretary in a week that's quite crazy. Uh, not only um, is England contending with the death of a woman um, who was exposed to Novichok, the poison uh, known for getting both the foreign Russian spy Ser Sergei Skripal and his daughter Yulia back in March, um, but also they have to contend with the Trump visit that's coming up later this week, as well as the NATO summit. So it, it's a pretty bad time to be without a foreign secretary. Um, um, but that's, yeah, those, that's what May is dealing with. And meanwhile, um, the whole continent is uh, greeting a new leader in Italy uh, who brings a different vantage point to this whole affair. Yeah, so the most, probably the most interesting and vocal figure in Italy on this issue is the Deputy Prime Minister Matteo Salvini of uh, what used to be known as the Northern League Party, which has rebranded itself, as many far-right parties in Europe have, um, this one has rebranded itself as the League. It started out as this very fringe separatist party that advocated the secession of the north of Italy. And because migration became such a big issue, it wanted to, it, it was able to appeal to voters further down south where a lot of the migration is happening. Mm. Um, and so Salvini, this, this formerly sort of crazy unthinkable party um, ended up getting not the most votes, but ended up with the most power just because of the way Italy's coalition politics works over this migration issue specifically. And it's an issue that resonates with a lot of with a lot of Italian voters and voters across the continent, it seems. Like. Yeah. And so, voters in the United States. I mean, pull back and just, yeah, tell tell us what uh, what is happening with migration uh in, into Europe at this moment. Last summer, we saw lots of headlines, lots of images, and had a big um, refugee migrant crisis um, that European leaders were contending with. How does that look now, a year on? Well, one of the really interesting things about these politicians is that they're, the politics is sort of lagging the reality of migration. And it's, it's a little bit although not perfectly parallel to what's happening in the United States, um, that sort of even as you're seeing an actual decline in some of the numbers coming into coming up to the border um, in in Europe, broadly, according to Europe's own statistics, since the peak of the migration crisis, which was a couple of years ago, um, it, migration to Europe is down something like 90 percent, 96 percent. Wow. Um, but because but the fact is that like Europe is still contending not so much with new newcomers, but they do have these people there that they now need to absorb. And this is creating all kinds of societal tensions. Yeah. So the whole I mean, the EU is a weird thing. Let's just acknowledge to that. To be sure. Right? It's a new quasi-sovereign thing. I mean, it's a, it's an entity that is both a complete entity unto itself with its own border uh, and also a bunch of different sovereign nations that have to contend with uh, their own internal politics. So 
Yasmin, you quoted um, the founder of a German think tank um, uh, saying that uh, it suddenly turns out that it's actually impossible to control a border unilaterally if your neighbors don't agree. Well, yes, I think what they meant is that as the German case kind of demonstrated last month, is that it's difficult for just one individual European government to decide that they are going to close their borders or alter um, their borders in some way because of the nature of the fact that the European Union is open internally. Um, it's, you know, once you're within uh, the Schengen zone, you can go from one country to another country quite easily. Um, and, and that's one of the, kind of the hallmarks of what makes the EU what it is. I think that point about internal borders is a good one. Yeah. And, and this is part of what makes the peripheral countries like Italy and like Austria so important. If we were talking, if we were having this conversation a couple of years ago even, who would think that, you know, the Italian Italian politics would be such an enthralling thing, but for a few handful of handfuls of specialists or Italophiles? Um, and who would think that it would matter very much to the future of Europe, who became the chancellor of Austria. What, um, to Yasmin's point about whether you can unilaterally control these borders, the point is that if you're on the periphery of Europe and you're letting in migrants, then the rest of Europe naturally has to deal with it just because of the way that Europe is set up. So the point is that these um, these leaders in what used to be countries that were not necessarily core to the European project is actually helping decide the fate of the project as a whole. Yeah. So what options do they have, Kathy? What types of uh, of answers to this problem might different leaders settle on? Well, I think one – I mean I think the key answer that people – the most important – issue that they need to solve now, again, given that the the new arrivals have dropped to such an extent, is how do you integrate the the people that are already there? And so there are different and and to your earlier point that the EU is this large sort of conglomeration of semi-unified countries that also have different national systems and sort of a patchwork of different you know regulations and and governing structures um they all also have different approaches toward how they integrate these newcomers so that's one challenge and then the other challenge of course is how you control the external borders interestingly um, the external borders of the eu the external borders of the eu correct and merkel was actually forced to harden her stance a little bit when she famously threw open germany's borders and said you know we can do it we can integrate these people yeah she was mother and, merkel yeah she was mother merkel um and has tried to has tried to stay pretty much on that side of the issue, but but has actually has gotten pulled right by Sebastian Kurtz among others um, to say you know they reached a they reached a compromise at an EU meeting that basically sets up uh, detention centers at borders to to vet asylum seekers to see whether or not you know they can in fact be allowed into the country. So wait, set up detention centers. That sounds. Pretty familiar sitting here in the U.S. weeks after we've had conflicts over the Trump administration's zero tolerance border enforcement policy. To be sure. So international law, as I understand it, requires you to hear out 
somebody's case for asylum. If they come to your country and claim asylum, you have to hear them out. Now, typically what's happened in the U.S. is that people have been claiming asylum from places like Syria that require, um, it. you know, it requires actual, actual flights to get to the United States. It's very hard to just cross the border into the United States from places like that. So the United States has traditionally vetted these asylum seekers in refugee camps and like places that are not actually in the U.S., Europe being sharing borders with some of these places doesn't have that, you know, hasn't had those kinds of systems in place and has done a lot of the asylum processing internally with people already in the country. So the point of this new system that is being proposed um, is to make it so that that processing doesn't happen within the country. So Germany has been among the most welcoming of the EU nations to refugees and other migrants. How have other countries held back migrants from entering their borders? And what approaches might Germany be choosing from? Well, one of the more dramatic examples of recent days was under Italy's, uh, under Salvini in Italy, where you had a migrant ship uh, coming from Libya that under a previous government would just have docked in Sicily. Um, But Salvini said, no, just leave them there. They can't, they can't come here. In the water? Yeah. Just leave them in the water. So they they were in the water for, I think, a couple of days before Spain said, OK, fine, we'll take them. But so and this is an interesting I mean, it's a social science experiment that's being conducted on real human beings, as I guess most social science experiments are. Uh, but this this being a very severe one, uh, that is, you know, Salvini's really encouraging burden sharing of the migration issue in a very dramatic and urgent kind of way. Um, So that's one approach. I mean, there are approaches such as, you know, Hungary closed its borders at one point. Um, You know, Kurtz of Austria has also helped with some of those border tightening initiatives on some of those peripheral countries. Uh, And I think those are those have been the main approaches. Wow. So we've been talking about the politics within European countries. Necessary context for the gathering of NATO's leaders this week in Brussels. All of Europe's leaders are grappling with a really shifting environment of politics within their own countries. Pressures from refugees pushing on their borders or refugees and immigrants that are already in these countries that their leaders now have to grapple with politically. But now for the next part of the conversation, let's turn to the gathering in Brussels, the main event, the NATO summit, and Donald Trump's questionable commitment to arguably the most successful military alliance in the world. Stick around. So, Jeff, what is NATO? (laughs) Donald Trump, our president, has been calling variably uh, over the past few years. He's called NATO obsolete. He's gone back on that. And he has arrived in Brussels this week with uh, several sharp words for European leaders and the the secretary Mm. general of NATO itself. Uh, So I wanted to step back and ask the question. Um, is NATO obsolete? What is it supposed to do? 
And NATO's supposed to do what it's done for as long as it's existed. It's one of the most successful military alliances, and not only military, it's a cultural alliance as well. It's a democratic alliance. An alliance of democracy is one of the most successful alliances and durable alliances in history. What does the president mean by NATO is obsolete? The president's foreign policy doctrine, if you will, rests on a couple of principles. Uh, The first is that we have no, uh, that allies are a burden. Uh, Our traditional allies are a burden. Um, The second is that uh, he mistrusts multilateral alliances. He believes that allies, whether allies singly or allies organized into uh, alliances, uh, broader alliances are all ripping us off. Um, And so he has a deep mistrust of of anything other than a bilateral relationship. And even a bilateral relationship is strictly transactional to him. And of course, and this is salient to this conversation, the third third leg of his doctrine, if you will, is a um, is a weakness for or let's say an excessive understanding for the plight of authoritarian figures. He has a weakness for authoritarianism. Obviously, NATO is the foremost gathering of nations in the world that are organized around principles of democracy, individual rights, freedom, market capitalism, free press, and so on. Apple pie. Apple pie, baseball. Motherhood. Um, Do they co- eat apple pie? In Cosmo Bavaria? the Wonder Dog. Um, <laughs> Cosmo the Wonder Dog. The, and, and so, of course, uh, Donald Trump is, um, is alienated from many of these concepts. He also believes, and this is where Trump's foreign policy is not a break from Obama's foreign policy, but a continuation or or an intensification of it. He is right to say that NATO countries and Europe especially um, should pay more for the common defense. That's not wrong. And and that's and President Obama has said that. President Bush said it before him. Um, but what his his critique is not about the budget. His critique it seems, is really about the nature of the alliance itself. NATO is for, if you want to get very, very specific, NATO is there to defend free Europe from first the Soviet Union and then Russia. Obviously, the only time NATO has actually uh, been activated as a common defense alliance uh, in real warfare has been in defense of the United States in Afghanistan, the invocation of Article 5, come to the common defense of members, um, occurred in 2001 when the United States was attacked, which is, of course, given <laughs> it's there's there's a level of chutzpah here um, when the president of the only country in NATO to ever have benefited directly militarily from the alliance. I mean, you could argue, of course, that the European countries have benefited uh, passively militarily for the last 60, 70 years, obviously, the presence of American troops in Germany and elsewhere. But but. In actual warfare, NATO went to war on behalf of the United States. So it's a little mm. bit um, galling for Europeans to be told that um, NATO has no purpose or that NATO other NATO members are ripping the United States off. But look, here, here the bottom line is if you don't believe that Russia is a threat today or to take it one step further, and I'm not necessarily implying this, I'm just putting this out there, if you believe that Russia is your natural friend then, of course, you as an American president are going to say NATO's a waste of time and money. And that's where we are right now. It's a rather unusual situation. 
But what's also interesting is, I, I, and I'm, I pose this question to you, Jeff, how, given your um, invocation of Obama's own feelings on this, which he told you. Given my invocation of Article 5. <laughs> yeah, your invocation. Of, <laughs> I mean, that's when other magazines come to the defense of the Atlantic. An attack on Jeffrey Goldberg is an, <laughs> is attack, an attack on, on all, all of us. <laughs> <laughs> I've always believed that, but very few people around me do. Oh, man, we're getting, yeah. <laughs> we're getting attacked a lot these days. I, yeah. I reaffirm that commitment. Matt's on my, Matt, Matt's Canada. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Matt's Canada in that case. I would absolutely reaffirm my Thank you very too. much. I think I'm Turkey. I have some Democrats. Canada, Canada in the pre-Trump <laughs> understanding of Canada. Can we me. count on Cosmo is the yeah. key, key question yeah. here. All right, enough of these hijinks. No, Go but on so, with the question. So, so Barack Obama, I believe, told you personally, vis-a-vis NATO, that, quote, free riders aggravate me. Yeah. Now, this is different. Remember, and that counted in the old days as an extreme comment. That was huge news all over <laughs> Europe the next day, in fact. We that were, was that, huge. That was, that was dominating headlines. That was headlines. counted as really blunt talk from a president. This is exactly yeah. This is exactly where I'm going with this. Is that the that stylistically, of course, Obama saying that to you, and Trump saying in front of Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg, you all are delinquent. You know, Russia owns the Germans. Is this how much though? Is this merely a rhetorical difference, and how much of this actually makes a difference as far as policy is now, concerned? Look, with- this is the funhouse mirror version of what Obama said. Obama said something that people have said on both sides of the aisle in American politics, which is like, hey, NATO, chip in. You're rich now. You know, when the alliance was created, Europe was on its back. And so the United States represented half the world economy. And, and, you know, but now Germany is different than it was right after the war, obviously. Um, So it's a difference in tone, but it's also a difference in kind. Obama never questioned, no American president until this current president has questioned the efficacy, the value, uh, the importance uh, not only the defense importance, but the, the I- idealistic importance of of NATO. So Trump has found the Achilles heel in the issue, right? He he. American taxpayers can understand intuitively. Hey, stop ripping us off, right? But his critique is not limited to budgetary considerations. His critique seems to be of the nature. His critique is of the Western alliance itself. Yeah, which is I'm not saying he's consciously doing Vladimir Putin's bidding, but he's doing Vladimir Putin's bidding. Whether or not they're coordinated is a, is a separate question, but, but he is actually aiding Russia in its longstanding feud with NATO by weakening the alliance. Two years ago, our colleague Uri Friedman kind of made this real. He uh, he had an interview with a British general, um, Richard Sheriff, who was one of the highest ranking military officials in NATO um, and asked him about this one scenario. What if Russia invaded the Baltics while Donald Trump was president? In July of 2016, Uri asked this question. um, What would happen if the Baltic nations were invaded by Russia? And I'm curious, I guess that's, that is where- So, I mean, this is a very basic- question, right? And 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 President Obama, who was no fan of uh, extraneous wars or what he thought of as extraneous wars. Um, and look, this is a critique from the McCain camp and even from the part of the Hillary camp um, vis-a-vis Ukraine. Ukraine was not in NATO. And there is obviously never an indication from Barack Obama that he would go to war on behalf of Ukraine against Russia. But statutorily or by, the, by, 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 by treaty, he was obligated to go to war on behalf of the Baltic states that had been brought into NATO. Um, and I have no doubt that had 
Russia invaded Estonia, Lithuania, Lithuania, Latvia, um, the United States would have gone, used military action to defend them. Under Obama. Under Obama. Now, this is where, I mean, this is, this is, this is a reminder. It's an interesting moment to remind us that all of the crises in international affairs that we've had over the past however many months it is that Trump has been president, 18, 20 months, um, uh, are self-created, right? I mean, we all, there's all this drama going on, but you want drama, just wait until Putin decides that now's the moment to start sneaking in his little green men into Estonia or Lithuania, Latvia, the way he did in Ukraine. Um the NATO headquarters and much of the American foreign policy and defense elite, including the defense secretary, Jim Mattis, will say, well, Russia's gone to war against our friend. We are obligated to defend them. And this is going to be a kind of an interesting moment to see what the president of the United States does. Does he does he uphold America's historic obligation to members of the NATO alliance or does he not? But it's a question that was never open it was it was not it's not a, it was not a question that would bother, have been bothered to have been asked but so jeff you're gonna have to leave us in a second to do important editor-in-chief stuff yes but i've got to ask president trump is about to meet with uh russian president vladimir putin that's it's very exciting uh next week what could happen at that meeting what do you expect will happen at that meeting? have you ever watched team america <laughs> um I, anything could happen i mean this is um What's the worst possibility? What's the best the possibility? Worst, the worst possibility <laughs> is that 10 minutes later, we're all dead. Um, <laughs> the, the best possibility is damage mitigation, right? Um, all of Trump's instincts tell him that Putin is not a threat. Many of Trump's instincts seem to tell him that Putin is an admirable figure, tough guy. Um, one of the things that could happen at minimum in this conversation, I, I, I would be afraid to, 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 to see this, but one of the things is that uh, Donald Trump can signal to Putin that uh, our conflict with Russia over what Putin did in Ukraine, Crimea, is over, uh, and that Trump could promise Putin to try um, to begin a process of lifting sanctions and bringing Russia fully back into the international community. That is... Um, it's both unbelievable in ordinary times and also plausible, uh, given this president's proclivities. Um, I don't know what's going to happen, and and maybe nothing. But you know, when he goes into these rooms alone with foreign leaders, um, really anything can happen. It's 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 exciting and terrifying at the same time. One last question for yes, you, sir. Jeff. Uh, in recent days. Uh, the former U.S. ambassador to Israel, Dan Shapiro, uh, had a widely circulated tweet storm because that's how foreign policy uh, happens these days, um, saying, first, quote, I don't think we are fully grappling with the possibility that we could be on the cusp of a completely new era, a fundamental reshaping of the international order. And I don't mean over the cor course of the Trump administration. I mean by next week. <laughs> what? Uh, I imagine from your familiarity with both Shapiro himself and the, the darkest imaginings of what uh, yeah, what, what, what that new what, era what could, could look happen, like, yeah. what what does he mean? What could that new era, what could that fundamental reshaping of the international order involve? No, we see the United States making a 
quick exit from the Western Alliance. Uh, not only quick exit, I shouldn't say quick exit from the Western Alliance. The United States is the linchpin of the Western Alliance. And if the United States, the President of the United States decides that we're no longer playing uh, the role that we played since the end of World War II, well, that, that disrupts everything. Look, the, the basic theory of, of, of America's stabilizing role in the world is as follows. There are three regions of the world that are crucial to American national security interests, East Asia, Europe, and the Middle East, right? Um, geopolitics, like nature, abhors a, a vacuum. So if the United States uh, exits from East Asia, that vacuum is filled by China. If the United States exits in some sort of declarative way, Europe and the NATO alliance, that vacuum is filled by Russia. In the Middle East, if we exit, uh, the vacuum is filled by some combination of Iran, Shia extremism, and Sunni extremism, non-state actors like ISIS and al-Qaeda, right? Um, so uh, the new era could be um, uh, a multipolar world in which the United States really isn't playing the role of one of the poles. Maybe in the Western Hemisphere, it's still one of the the, the poles. Um, but um, and it sounds overly dramatic because we've had a remarkable remarkably stable run with obviously mistakes and bumps and terrible miscalculations and also great victories uh, over the last 70 years. But but the rules of the road were written and enforced by the United States since the end of, the, uh, of, of World War II. Um, the United States, uh, the, the steadfastness of the United States and its Western allies in NATO um, brought about or outlasted the Soviet Union, led to the collapse of communism in Europe. Um, and uh, if this president who is quasi-isolationist and in some ways anti-democratic gets his way, um, the United States will pull the curtain uh, on on the role that it's played to mainly good effect in the world. And, and that role will be assumed by other countries that are not democratic. And so that's, I guess that's what he's talking. I mean, that's what everybody's talking about. So I assume that's what he's talking about. <laughs> How do you assess the likelihood that Trump will get his way? 42%. Okay. Or at 27%. I, I mean, I, I, American presidents have a lot of power. True. But American bureaucracies also have a lot of power. Well, you know, there's cognitive dissonance here, right? Uh, I, I mean, you listen to the defense secretary, Jim Mattis, who is a, a stalwart alliance maintainer of alliances, stalwart believer um, that that the American system and the American role in the world is a positive role, certainly more positive than the role played by China, Russia, and Iran, for instance. Um, and, and you have many people like Jim Mattis around the president. Um, but at a certain point, these are all people who just work for the president. The president what the president has is not only the, the executive power uh, located in him, and the bully pulpit and all the rest, but he has an acquiescent. Uh, he has the acquiescence of a Republican-controlled Congress. So, um, you know, it's a uh, there's a lot of power. I mean, we always know we understand that as a as the controller of the nuclear arsenal, he's a monarch, an absolute monarch. But he has monarchical power in terms of creating creating new realities in the global order. Well, Jeff, thank you for thank you for giving us. I have more to say. I know you have more to say. I would love to listen to the, no, no, the no. past, the twentieth century, and the new twenty first century international order from Jeffrey Goldberg further. But I know you've got to leave. Yeah. So I'm gonna thank you, colleagues. Yeah. Thank you, colleagues. Thank you, Cosmo. <laughs> Bye, Jeff. 
thanks to Jeff for a tremendous history lesson and future lesson. Around the world with Jeffrey Goldberg. Absolutely. There's a reason we keep that guy around. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But we will sadly have to let him go for Keepers, our segment in which I ask the question, what have you heard recently that you do not want to forget? First, an announcement. Next week is the anniversary of the launch of Radio Atlantic. So to celebrate and to look back, we're going to do an All Keepers episode. We'll visit with past guests and look back on their keepers. What have they held on to? What is it that they've encountered recently that they do not want to forget? And of course, we also want to hear from you. What are your keepers of the year? What has stuck with you? Give us a call and let us know your keeper of the whole year. 2018, since our launch in 2017, what do you not want to forget? 202-266-7600. Leave us a voicemail with your contact information and your answer to the question, what do you not want to forget? This week, we'll start with a keeper from our listener, John. My name is John. Uh, My wife and I just got married this past weekend, and my keeper concerns my wife's Oma, who is 93, and had hip replacement surgery not just a couple of months ago. Uh, She told us the day after the wedding and reception that when she went out to the dance floor, she felt the music took over her. And indeed, we have video and pictures of her breaking it down with all of these 20-something-year-old people. It was wonderful. Uh, Thank you so much. Bye-bye. That is wonderful. Man. Oh, my God. I want to just keep that keeper. Absolutely. 93. So that means that in 1911... Well before I'm NATO. really not gonna. Yeah, I'm really not gonna check your math on that John's one. John Zoma was uh, entering the world, and now she's dancing with the kids. John Zoma's still getting down. Awesome, awesome. John's wife Zoma. I should probably correct. I think. I think That's it's great. his Oma in law now. So yeah. <laughs> awesome, fantastic. Yasmin, what do you not want to forget? Um. So my, it's a little. Well, so just prefacing before I tell you. Um. At the moment, Croatia is playing England, and my keeper um, has to do with the World Cup. And they are in overtime, I think, and tied. So hopefully I'm not jinxing anything, but I'm going to keep my keeper nonetheless, regardless of what happens. (laughs) Um, So uh, my keeper is a song uh, that I've had stuck in my head pretty much the last couple of weeks. Um, It's the 1996 single Three Lions uh, by the Lightning Seeds, which is basically England's World Cup anthem, which is kind of um, reemerged in the last couple of weeks. Um, And it's basically a song about how um, seemingly outwardly pessimistic but inwardly hopeful English soccer fans tend to be. Um, Mm. And I think it kind of perfectly captures um, just how unexpected England's performance has been this year. Um, And even though I'm not a huge sports person myself, um, there's something really nice about having like an exciting, unifying and positive thing that kind of brings a country together, especially in a place like uh, Britain, which politics for which has been kind of the opposite. So, uh, yeah, I'm going to be listening to it for as long as I can, regardless of whether England goes to the final or not. But hopefully football does come home. Awesome. Awesome. And let me take the opportunity to shout out a piece by our colleague, Sophie Gilbert, who wrote a wonderful piece about hope in England in the wake of the World Cup, uh, which we will drop into the show notes. So thank you for that, Yasmin. That was beautiful. Awesome. It was, in fact, beautiful. Um, Kathy. What do you not want to forget? Well, 
I had one, but I'm switching it because John inspired me. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> my uh, my uncle was recently hospitalized um, mm. and had a. It was for a normal surgery, but um, it turned out that his heart stopped for seven minutes. Oh goodness! Yeah, um, and it also turned out that he woke up and has bounced back. And the first yes. time, which is. An actual miracle. Um, the first time I got to talk to him after that happened, he, I was asking him, you know, I didn't know how his mental functioning was and I knew he was going to be okay when he said, oh yeah, you know, they have me on the cardiac diet. Well, what's that, Uncle Ken? Well, if you taste anything good, you have to spit it out. <laughs> awesome. That's my keeper. <laughs> yeah, Uncle Ken. <laughs> <laughs> I will go last. My keeper is... Um, the book Educated by Tara Westover, which I recently completed. Um, if you're not familiar with the book, it's been getting all sorts of acclaim and for good reason. It's a pretty extraordinary read. It's a memoir about um, uh, Westover's upbringing in Idaho. She uh, was raised uh, in a family under a, a patriarch under a father who has a kind of uh, anti-government crypto-Mormon ideology and kept Tara and several of her siblings out of school um, for the formative years of their life, prevented them from – several of them from being registered with the government and generally you know, raised them in a isolationist, nationalist, ruby Ridgey kind of context. Um, Westover managed to um, leave Idaho to get an education at some of the world's best centers of um, higher learning places like Cambridge and Harvard and ultimately acquire a PhD um, and then write this tremendous book. But the thing that I want to keep is um, just having just read Educated, um, it's a book it, – it would be very easy um, to read this book and stereotype Westover's family, um, to come away with the sense of just, oh, man, these these rubes out out in uh, out in the mountain somewhere, um, uh, living out some weird crypto fantasy. Um, she doesn't do that, and it's part of what makes the memoir powerful. And if you read it, I highly recommend that you read past the epilogue um, to a note that she writes called A Note on the Text, um, where she says, we are all of us more complicated than the roles we are assigned in the stories other people tell. This is especially true in families. Part of what makes the book remarkable is Westover reckoning with the legitimacy of the knowledge that she's come to acquire, um, the education that she's um, that she's been given by these institutions of higher learning, by the likes of Harvard and and Cambridge, and the sacrifice that it took um, in part of some of her relationships with people that she still, it's clear, loves dearly uh, to acquire that knowledge and whether or not the acquisition of the knowledge was worth it. Um, it's a just striking book and I will be wrestling with it and its implications for a good while. So educated Tara Westover, highly recommended. 
And with that, uh, we've reached the end of another Radio Atlantic. Here's hoping that the international order remains intact in the next seven days. Yasmin, thank you so much for taking time out of your vacation to join us. Thank you so much for having me and Cosmo. We both (laughs) appreciate it. Always glad to have Cosmo. Bring him back. Kathy, thank you. Thanks, Matt. Once again, that'll do it for this week's Radio Atlantic. This episode was produced and edited by Kevin Townsend with production support from Kim Lau. Our executive producer for Atlantic Podcasts is Catherine Wells. Our theme music, as always, is the Battle Hymn of the Republic as interpreted by the legendary John Batiste. Thank you to my inestimable colleagues, Kathy Gilsonen and Yasmin Sirhan for enlightening us this week and honorary shout out to Cosmo, our canine correspondent. Thanks as always to my esteemed co-host, Jeff. What is your keeper? Once again, call us at 202-266-7600 and leave us a voicemail with your contact information. Check us out at facebook.com slash radioatlantic and theatlantic.com slash radio. Don't forget our show notes in the episode description. And if you like what you're hearing, do rate and review us in Apple Podcasts and definitely subscribe in your preferred podcast app. Most importantly, thank you for listening. May you never have cause to question the fealty of your allies, whoever they are. We'll see you next week.